Hi, and welcome to What's Next, the podcast where we explore the technology of tomorrow and what it means for us today. I'm Christina Beckhold-Russ. I cover the UK and Europe for Samsung Next. Over the next several months, we'll be sharing interviews recorded at this year's Tech Open Air Conference in Berlin, where some of today's leading minds in technology gathered in early July. Each week, we'll highlight the human stories behind tomorrow's most groundbreaking innovations. Up next, you'll hear from Barnaby Perks, the founder and CEO of Oxford VR, and Andre de Albuquerque, the host of the podcast Pioneers Show. In conversation with Andre, Barnaby shares how Oxford VR is using immersive technology for mental health. So for people who don't know who you are, let's just jump right into it. Yeah. Who are you? Oxford VR is, is really what we're here for, which is a mental health technology company. We, I guess, are a little different from most tech companies in that our roots are in psychology. We develop psychological interventions that really work using VR technology. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what we're here about now. But if, actually, my background's a bit deeper than that. So my previous company um, pioneered a method of delivering cognitive behavioral therapy over the internet. So with patients and, and therapists being remote to each other. And it created a very different environment for patients. It, it made, enabled them to uh, express themselves more readily. It enabled them to be more open, more honest, more candid. They kind of projected onto their therapist their ideal of what they wanted their therapist to be. So we learned a lot about how therapy works. But actually, the thing that we really learned in that company was that the variation between therapists is really, really strong and so already significant. And so just because someone's qualified and accredited doesn't mean they'll deliver good quality therapy. And actually, when you look at their transcripts, Mm. you'll see people who stick to protocol get great outcomes. People who don't, don't. But it's very hard to manage that from a supervision perspective with a one-to-one mm-hmm. private conversation. And so what we've done at Oxford VR is to protocolize the therapeutic intervention using a virtual coach. Now, the virtual coach has real benefits over a real-life coach in that she never gets bored of being repetitive. Mm-hmm. She's really happy to just go through the process because a lot of the techniques we use require repetition and learning. You're challenging your intrusive thoughts, the thoughts that make you feel uncomfortable in certain situations. And so we use VR to stimulate those intrusive thoughts in a virtual environment as if you're in the real world. But while you're doing that, you know that you're safe. You know you're in a virtual environment. So take our social avoidance program, for example. You'll be in a cafe ordering a drink or playing a game, catching bubbles out of a bubble machine with with lots of people milling around you. You know you're safe. You know actually you're just in a VR headset in in a lab, whereas your, the other part of your brain, the bit that from, from your eyes is telling you that in fact, all these people are around. I'm feeling really anxious about this. I don't like being around people. I'm having to do this task in front of people. That's really challenging for me. So you have this sort of really nice paradox going on where you know you're safe, but actually you feel really unsafe. So you can start mm-hmm. to challenge these intrusive thoughts that are making you feel unsafe. So that's, that's the sort of the, the crux of what we're doing in lots of VR. And by doing it in a really protocolized and repetitive way through this virtual coach, so the virtual coach, takes you through tasks. She tells you what to do, who to interact with, when you go to the next room, what you're going to be doing. But she also explains to you how in doing this, you're challenging your intrusive thoughts. Mm-hmm. You're, you're starting to think about why you respond in this way to the situation. And, and the refrain is often, are these thoughts really helping you or not? And of course, the more you think about it, the more you realize these intrusive thoughts aren't helping at all. They're actually holding you back and preventing you from interacting. And so you can, once you challenge them, you can overcome them and you can actually reverse what is normally a vicious cycle. You can break it and reverse it back into a virtuous cycle of, of, of being more engaged. 
So my background, m- many years ago, um, so I'm in my 50s now, so I've been around technology and, and healthcare for a long time. I worked in biomedical engineering. So I did postgraduate in biomedical engineering science, um, worked in research in, in biomechanics, and developed products for children with special needs for a very long time in my early working life. So these were children with really complex physical and cognitive special needs who lacked the ability to take part in everyday classroom activities. And one of the key things about learning for children is they have to be able to learn to make wrong decisions, to make bad decisions, to do things that actually aren't necessarily the best thing, to learn if you do this, it's going to hurt somebody, for example. If you, if you do things a different way, it won't hurt somebody. So you'll get a, a better response from the world. And if you can't move and you can't speak and you can't write, you're going to really struggle to do all of those things. So I, there's a huge psychology element to that, that technology. So we developed a lot of technologies that enable people to, to move in, in, in increase the range of freedom that they had, enable them to communicate through voice output communication aids. So these are very early days of, I mean, I, I had a company in Cambridge, uh, back in the nineties where we were making small batches of single board computers, which seems crazy now, <laughs> yeah, because it's long before now it's just an iPad. But in those days we had to build from scratch of our own design, a single board computer and package it in an office just outside Cambridge and, and ship these off to, 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 to our customers and of course they went wrong all the time and it's horribly unreliable but you you so so yeah i've been around this field in many ways for a very long time basically you're treating the brain by tricking it yeah isn't that so you're creating like a, you, there's a dissonant intelligence that you're having there an issue that you know that you're safe you know that you're unsafe isn't this overly stimulating the, the brain at some point because like you said you know that you're safe but you're one point you're also feeling unsafe. So how does this work from a treatment perspective? How does one suffering from anxiety mm. or any other mental issue in this situation that you can, you know that you have two feelings, two thoughts at the same time, isn't yep. this something that can also add to more confusion to the brain or something? I think tricking probably is the wrong term for this. Okay. We're, we're, we're getting the brain to see it from both sides. So mm. the problem with somebody with an anxiety disorder, for example, is that, you know, say it is a, a social anxiety issue mm-hmm. and they don't like going to public places. Um, there is nothing in that anxiety that's helpful to them. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in that anxiety that's real, actually. It's just they feel it's real, and then it becomes real. So they avoid things. They withdraw. They don't do things. Now, in very extreme cases, that mean, may mean that they don't seek medical help when they have a minor medical ailment. So they don't go to their doctor. They don't get treated. They become very ill. They may even die younger. So we're not really tricking. We're simply enabling people to see that there's another way of looking at this. In the real world, it's kind of impossible to do that because when you immerse yourself, so for example, if I was really nervous about social situations, I'd be pretty unhappy in this podcast at the moment, mm-hmm. being watched by how many people, a dozen people just <laughs> over here, you grilling me with these questions, knowing I'm being recorded. This is all a total nightmare. And actually, if I really had a problem with that, one really good way to do it would be to practice it mm-hmm. in a virtual environment where I've got pretend people here pretend and a, friend, a, pr- a pretend interviewer. You know, at, actually, I could suddenly realize that nothing bad was happening. All I had to do was talk mm-hmm. ab- about things I know about and everything's going to be okay. And we're doing exactly the same thing with our VR programs. So, so we're, we're taking situations people find really difficult, but just helping to understand they're not difficult um, by, by making them feel safe. So if, if there's a trick... It's making them feel safe. So the acrophobia program, the extreme fear of heights program that we developed first, we chose it for many reasons. One thing is actually there's a natural anxiety around heights. And it's not a, this isn't a, an unhelpful intrusive thought. This mm-hmm. is actually a really helpful thought. If you're standing on the edge of a cliff, you really should be feeling as if it's quite a dangerous <laughs> place to be or crossing a rope ladder wherever else it may be. And what's, I think, fascinating about doing that is that um, 
I don't have a particular fear of heights, but I don't particularly like being on the top of cliffs looking over them. Um, but I've noticed the, the impact of doing the, the fear of heights program a number of times as we went through various iterations of it has been that I am more comfortable in those situations, but I'm no less cautious, mm-hmm. no less cautious at all. And what it actually also means, I think this is one of the big dangers we, we, we saw with fear of heights that a lot of people develop this phobia um, when they have children. So they maybe have a certain anxiety around heights, but when they have children, they form a massive anxiety around heights because they can see their children in dangerous positions. And they have something to lose now as well. Something to lose, exactly right. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that, that it, we all, you know, those of us who have children, we learn to let our children go further to the edge. And this, in this program, you're simply doing the same thing with yourself. You're giving yourself more and more freedom to take more and more risk without taking any really dangerous risks. Now, we already circled around, but before I want to learn a little bit more about you. So you studied uh, biomedical engineering. Hmm. How does one come from this area, an engineering side, to psychology? How did you come into mental health care as a whole? Yeah, so, you know, I started off in biomedical engineering in, in very physical things, so biomechanics. How do you design a wheelchair so somebody can, can push it more easily? So that actually they can get, get better propulsion, mm-hmm. be more comfortable, more relaxed. How do you design the seating so they don't get pressure sores? Those sort of things. But as soon as you start working with those populations, you also start working with populations of people, say, with very high, high spinal injuries where they're ventilated. They, you know, the only switch they can control to operate things. So cognitively completely functional still, but the only switch they can operate is something they suck and blow on. Mm-hmm. And actually devising techniques to enable those people to move around, so to drive their wheelchair, to operate their environment. So using infrared, if it was in those days, to, to control uh, different devices around the house, to uh, move their seating so that they didn't sit in one position all the time so they, they could reduce or change their pressures so to reduce pressure sore risk, all those sort of things. That's This is the, the evolution I went through. Mm-hmm. And from there, I went into working with children with special needs and doing things where actually a child with quite complex special needs had really no controllable movements. And so to encourage them to develop a controllable movement, we'd mount a switch near an arm that they could flail around. Mm-hmm. And every time they hit the switch, the wheelchair they were in would drive forward maybe a meter and they would stop. And they hit it again, it would drive forward a meter and it would stop. And when it hit the walls, this was in a big sports hall, when it hit the wall, it had pneumatic bumpers with switches in. And the, the thing would hit the wall, it would stop, it would reverse through 90 degrees and it would drive off again. So they could basically bounce around a gym. And by doing that, you could teach children to hit this switch. And so what was a movement that they couldn't control? Because there's already incentive, they, 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 they would, the incentive would be there to actually gain the skills to keep hitting that switch repeatedly. And eventually you can then use that switch, switch skill through a scanner to start giving, giving the child choices. So following a, a, a line following device, for example. Mm-hmm. So every time I hit a junction, you want to go left or right. You can start to use that same scanner to operate a communication device. So they can actually access a computer that can, can speak for them. Mm-hmm. And they can construct words and sentences and meaningful interactions using these computer interfaces. So you suddenly give that child the ability to move to communicate, and to critically to make choices. And so in the classroom, they can do things. And, and you know, fundamentally, um, you know, those of us who have children know that the, the most important thing for children to learn is that they can do things that they're not supposed to do. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, and my children are particularly expert at this, by the way, you know, doing exactly what they're asked not to do by their parents, for example. Because if you don't ever have that ability to do things you're asked not to do, you'll never really learn. And, mm. uh, and, and so this is one of the great things. I remember with these children in wheelchairs, um, 
sometimes teachers would be quite challenged. They're saying, but now this child's able to move. This child's actually in a big heavy bit of machinery. They can hurt somebody else. So that's really good. It's really good because <laughs> then they can actually choose not to hurt somebody else. Once you start getting into adding real function, there's cognitive function as well as physical function, that's when you start to get into the psychology of, of these devices. And that was really the sort of tipping point for me to then get into mental health. Okay, that's an incredible story. So mm. was it because you saw something in terms of kids that made you become more interested in mental health? Or if you don't mind me asking, but was there a personal incentive as well from something that happened that you might have seen more in mental health area? Because one thing that I've been seeing in every time that I talk with somebody in the specifically VR applied to healthcare is that it's always a friend a cousin, an aunt, something that happened that made them think, okay, I have these skills and I know that I can apply them this way. But it, was there any some any special incentive or was the, the pain slash joy that you see that you could create with people with specific lack of skills or lack of capabilities that made you, okay, I think that I can do this on a more scalable level using VR, using... So I really I really don't have a personal story in any of these things. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I spend a lot of time working with children with really complex disabilities, which mm-hmm. for a lot of people is quite a challenging group to, to work with. And uh, But I had no experience of it. I, I just love doing it. I love seeing transformation in people. And then similarly, when, when it came to long before VR, mm-hmm. delivering mental health treatment using a technology as a mediator. Uh, actually, I didn't know an awful lot about mental health treatment and CBT at all, but I met some psychologists who did, and had actually come up with this idea of using the internet to have this communication. And we, between us, managed to kind of create this method of doing it that mm-hmm. that that was really protocolized, actually combined not only the treatment, but but the management of the therapists, very careful supervision of those therapists. I realized that, you know, I talked earlier about the quality of the input from the therapist being fundamental here. If you have verbatim recorded transcripts, you can actually then start to talk to that therapist about maybe what they're doing really well, but also maybe some of the things that they're not doing so well, where they're drifting off protocol perhaps. And so understanding how all this this piece fits together was really, really important in that. And of course, you can use technology to provide all mm-hmm. of these protocols and, and, and to give a lot of this consistency. And the other thing about mental health that I discovered at that point was that measuring outcomes is really important. And it, it sounds obvious because we do it in physical health, but mental health for years and years and years was pretty much unmeasured. There's a very interesting program in the NHS in the UK or in England um, called the Improving Access to Psychological Therapies. And it's a um, very structured, CBT-heavy primary care program where patients can self-refer. You don't have to go through your general practitioner or any, any other. You can actually refer into the, into the service, be assessed, and be treated. But the services that are all funded through regional NHS funds are measured on their outcomes, measured by a series of standard questionnaires, mm-hmm. and they're also measured on their access. So this is where it kind of gets interesting. Um IAPT, when it started, was sort of below 10% access. It was maybe 7% or 8% of people or estimated prevalence. And over the years, that grew to 15% of prevalence, which, by the way, which was really good, but it means that 85% of people with these conditions were not being treated. Mm-hmm. And the ambitious target now is to go from 15% to 25%. But that's still pretty scandalous. Imagine if that was the case in physical health, if 75% of people went untreated. So technology is a key to expanding that 25% way up to 70, 80, 90%. But where IACT has been really powerful is in requiring services to measure outcomes data at every single therapy session. So you can track a patient's progress from the start to the end. You can measure the improvement. 
Uh, and you and you can say with some statistical certainty that there's been an improvement in that patient's outcomes. And you can compare different services with each other. You can compare different patient cohorts with each other. You can actually start to really use data to understand the effects of different treatment techniques. But basically here you're you're not necessarily substituting the therapist itself. You're making the therapist on a virtual level, but you have a therapist that oversees the treatments and does that statistical analysis and does yeah. this analysis. So yeah. your role is also not only on providing a service, but also on an educational side for therapists, I assume. We're big fans of therapists. You shouldn't be blaming therapists for the lack of supply. There just is a shortage of people that, that we can train mm -hmm. up to do this. And there's a shortage of financial resources to enable that to happen as well. We think that face-to-face -face therapy is a fundamentally important tool in our armory, mm -hmm. particularly for some people in certain conditions. And in fact... There will be some people who will have a blended mix of, um, you know, self-help tools, VR and face-to-face -face therapy. That's a really important thing. Mm -hmm. And even within the VR therapy, it's still important that somebody manages the patient. So somebody assesses the patient at the beginning and understands what their condition is, what, what their kind needs of treatment are, they might need. assigns the treatment to them. And then, and then actually, if necessary, in the middle intervenes just to see if it's working. And certainly at the end measures the outcomes to make sure there has been an impact. And reviews. So one of the key things for a new treatment like the VR treatment is getting patient and clinician feedback to improve the product. Because the product that we release on day one, you know, is not going to be perfect. We know that. Mm -hmm. And and so if we're going to improve both user experience and clinical impact, we have to listen to it and, and learn from the data we get back from those patients and therapists. Let's put it this way in an almost cheeky way of saying that the change that you want to see, that the thing that you want to see that's being developed is using Oxford VR processes or let's say VR treatment as another tool in the tool belt of a therapist, basically. So yeah. the, the change that you want to see in the world in this aspect. Or of a service. Yeah. So actually at the moment um, we are, if we want to double the amount of therapy we give, we have to double the number of therapists, which is yeah, crazy. What I'd much rather be able to do is get the same therapist to be able to treat 10 times as many patients or 20 times as many patients. You have already mentioned this, but I would like to know, how did, you, did this come from an idea to execution? So you're already doing this, but how did it come? Where does the vision come? So the vision comes from Daniel Freeman, who is professor of psychology at Oxford. And Daniel's been working in this space for nearly 20 years. Mm -hmm. When he started, he'd have equipment the size of this room, probably, mm -hmm. uh, to do this with enormous great paraphernalia for the headsets and uh, yeah, great big computers to run all of this as well. And But what Daniel's proven over many years and demonstrated is that particularly for really challenging um, conditions like paranoia, um, like psychosis, you can have a really big impact in these virtual worlds. And it wasn't until two, three years ago that the technology became small enough and cheap enough to be deployed at scale. So now you look, there's a whole range of VR headsets around from the sort of, you know, the Android based things up to the, the sort of, uh, uh, high graphics quality of the HTC and the, and the Oculus. We focused on the higher end part of it. So we mm -hmm. still need to have a headset tethered to a computer. We still need the high power of the, of, the, of the graphics card and the computer. But over time, that will change and it'll be in a standalone headset as well, I've no doubt. But Daniel kind of has had this vision for a long time and has been, has been proving it out year after year after year. And I guess unlike a lot of startups, yeah, he's a professor of psychology at the university. He didn't particularly have any desire to be an entrepreneur. Um, he'd always thought about it, but was approached by Oxford Sciences Innovation, which is a large fund run by the university with other investors. So it's a £600 million fund. And 
the role of the fund is to take clever ideas from the university and commercialize them. I guess where it's slightly different from a lot of spin-out funds is most spin-out funds rely on the academic to be the entrepreneur mm-hmm. and, to, and to pitch the case in. The fund spotted the idea and then built the management team around it. So I was then introduced to Daniel. And in fact, his brother, Jason, who he'd worked with for many years on um, publishing a number of the self-help tools that he had. Um, so he developed a number of self-help tools for a number of conditions. And, and between him and Jason, they'd, they'd published those and written them up into books. And Jason got deeply involved in the design of these VR programs. And so between the three of us, mm-hmm. this was the, really the start of the company a couple of years ago. With Daniel and his science and his technology and his brother in the, in the, in the sort of translation of that into, into product. And, and then we built a team around that. So now we have a team of 30 people in the UK. We have our clinical team in Oxford. We have a VR development team in London. So these are all X games or X media mm-hmm. developers. So there's a, um, environment artists, character artists, animators, programmers. And then we have a, a group of partnerships people that, that work with our partners, such as AXA in Hong Kong mm-hmm. and, and various US healthcare systems and the NHS in the UK, for example, so that we can then deploy these products as they become available. So this is clearly a, lo- a long, longer term vision, like you said, built by a professor and then built yeah. by specific pieces. So a, a question that I have for you is 10 years from now, what do you see? So let, we're here at TOA, let's say, imagine that you're back here again, if everything goes right, in 10 years. What do you see happening for Oxford VR? What do you see happening for TOA? Which things do you think should be talked more about? I assume mental health might be a mm-hmm. thing because mm-hmm. it's still stigma everywhere. Yeah. Uh, do you th- what do you think should be solved by then? What's your opinion on these topics? So, I mean, on, on Oxford VR, um, I mean, our goal is is not to do a quick exit. Our goal is to build a really big company. And that will not just be around, around VR, it'll be around whatever. So in 10 years' time, I don't know what the technology will be, but I know we'll be using it. And I also know we won't have just one point solution. The world has got too many companies trying to sell one point solution as a panacea. Mm-hmm. You actually need a, a whole armory of tools to, to, to be able to do this effectively. And I think aggregation of tools, either through M&A or through partnership, is really key. So that's where Oxford VR is going to be. And I, and I think we will transform mental health care. We'll be treating many, many more people. Stigma will be reduced. Many people will be coming forward and getting good treatment. For TOA, I mean, I think, you know, I think it can only blossom. I think it's a wonderful thing. We've been discussing opportunities we might have uh, next year in terms of bringing some of our our developers here just for the experience they'll get from being here. But one of the things about health that always really bugs me is that a lot of tech startups from a non-clinical background always, well, choose to focus on wellness rather than health. And they choose wellness because it's less regulated. You don't have to deal Mm -hmm. with the CE mark and FDA approval, all that sort of stuff. But also, you're not really helping people in the same way. I mean, it's good. It's helpful. Keeping well people well, don't get me wrong, is a good thing to do. But how many companies actually really tackle the really difficult regulated markets, which are treating really serious conditions? Mm-hmm. And I'd love to see much more emphasis on that in both mental and physical health. Well, as just wrapping up the conversation, what's an awful, awful buzzword that you'd like to see eradicated completely from your industry? Let's say both healthcare, let's say two Two buzzwords, healthcare on one side, VR on the other side. Well, VR has loads of crazy words I don't really understand. When I talk to our VR programmers, they talk in, they talk, talk in this gibberish language. <laughs> it's an idea of affordance, which is how close you, you can be to something before you pick it up, which I just, why not actually give some descriptive term for that? So that's my VR one. When I was speaking earlier, I talked about our lived experience advisory panel. What on earth is lived experience? It's, it's kind of euphemistic. Actually, we should describe these are people who have lived with a mental health condition. Lived experience is like a sort of really weird it's meaning. Redundant, yeah, think, it right? is redundant. Yeah, 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 quite. So any, any kind of construction like that, I'd love to get rid of. Thank you very much. 
listening to What's Next. We're currently releasing a new episode every week from this year's Tech Open Air Conference in Berlin. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Just search for What's Next on your app of choice or go to samsungnext.com forward slash podcast. I'm your host, Christina Beckhold-Russ. This episode of What's Next was produced by Rachel King, Laura Flynn, and Eliza Lambert, with Claire Mullen as sound engineer for Pod People. If you have questions or suggestions, we would love to hear from you. Get in touch on Twitter at Samsung Next, or send us an email, podcast at samsungnext.com. Cheers. <laughs>